is what the word says. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama samachthii, that is my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So today is Palm Sunday. Uh, the Sunday, this is the Sunday we traditionally celebrate what is called the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And you may remember from reading the Gospels that when Jesus came into Jerusalem, he entered Jerusalem with quite a bit of fanfare. So the people declared with loud voices, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They, they waved palm branches and laid them down before him. Hence the reason why we call this Palm Sunday. When I was growing up, uh, oftentimes they would cut palm branches and us kids would wave them on Palm Sunday, the beginning of the church service. And generally speaking, this Sunday, it has a celebratory um, theme to it because we're welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem, the coming King. But I want us to consider this morning that Jesus arrives in Jerusalem with a very specific purpose. He is indeed coming as a conquering king, but not conquering king as, um, as men perceive conquering kings. When men perceive or conceive of conquering kings, what we think about is a ruler, a, a strong leader who comes to overthrow established governments, who, who come to, to bring about by force a new government, a new establishment of rule. That was not what Jesus came to do. Jesus enters Jerusalem with the singular purpose to die. Nothing about what happens from uh, in the week of Holy Week was by chance or happenstance. Nothing of that caught Jesus by surprise. In fact, all the way through the Gospels, you'll hear Jesus say over and over again, all of this was happening in order to fulfill the Scriptures. Some of the same people on Palm Sunday who shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, will also raise their voice in the end of this week, crying out for Jesus to be crucified. Jesus enters Jerusalem as a conquering king, not to conquer governments and, and rulers. Jesus enters Jerusalem to be a conquering king, to once and for all conquer sin and death. In our passage, we have Matthew's witness of the last words of Jesus on the cross. These are words of despair. My God, why have you forsaken me? Those are words of despair. They're words of agony and suffering. This is a very dark and sad moment. I always struggled as a kid putting together in my mind the celebratory theme of Palm Sunday with what came after Palm Sunday. 
Everything after Palm Sunday is dark and gloomy until you get to Easter Sunday. Now, I want to give a little warning here. There's a natural desire in me and I think in most folks to rush to Easter Sunday. Easter Sunday is good. Somebody say amen. Easter Sunday is where we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. That is indeed good. All the things about, the, even the customary things that we do on Easter Sunday have under their underpinning a celebratory, a, a joyful response. Many of us buy new clothes for the kids. We, 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 we spruce things up. We, we decorate things. And all of those things have as their, their, their underpinning a sense of celebration, of new, of new life. And that is good. But my warning to us this morning is we must not rush too quickly to Easter. And this is why. We have a natural tendency to turn away, to minimize, to ignore even the ugliness of sin and death. And everything from today until this coming Friday is nothing but ugly and dark. But here's the thing. If you will not turn away from the ugliness of the cross, the darkness of the cross, the ugliness of the cross makes all the more beautiful the light, the truth, and the beauty of the resurrection. So this morning, I want us to consider what is happening on the cross. And, and I really want to talk about this. You're going to use the word total because I want you to understand that what Jesus does this week is total, complete. Everything he does is not half. It's not metaphorical or allegory. It is all. Jesus totally dies. Jesus totally suffers. And therefore, he brings about total redemption for sinners who are condemned in their sin. So I want us to begin with the reality of his death. What Jesus does on the cross is total death. There is a truth, dear friends, that real sin requires real death. Real sin requires real death. The, the, the first reference to death recorded in Scripture is immediately following the sin of Adam and Eve. You may remember they sinned against God. They ate the forbidden fruit. They hide themselves because for the first time they realize they are, they are naked. And when God confronts them and brings about the curse over them, the very next thing that God does is cover them with clothes made out of animal skin. It's the first reference to anything dying in all of Scripture. And from that moment of Adam and Eve's sin to the very moment of, of Jesus' death on the cross, the reality of it is that sin requires death. In the Old Testament law, a sin offering required the death of an animal. If you were to go back and read Leviticus 4, it describes the requirements of sin offerings. And in every type of those offerings, there's an interesting instruction. It gives instructions of how the animals are to be placed up on the altar. It gives specific instructions of, of how all of the different parts of the animal are to be offered and what parts are to be put on the altar there at the temple, what parts were to be taken outside of the camp to be burned. But there's a specific instruction for every animal, no matter what, what the cause of sin it was, it was atoning for, and that was that all of the blood of the animal was to be drained out. Now, that's not just some weird, gory detail of Scripture. That was an intentional and purpose command of God, because God wanted the people to know that sin required 
total death. It required the complete giving of one's life for the redemption of another. Blood was seen as the life source, as, the, as, the, as where the life was. And so if all of the blood was poured out, then all of the, of the life was given. Hebrews chapter 9 in the New Testament says it this way, and according to the law, one must uh, one may all, almost uh, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. Dear friends, the cross of Jesus is ugly, and the cross of Jesus is difficult to look at. The cross of Jesus is a gruesome scene and unsettling to ponder. And what makes it ugly is it is the stark testimony of the consequence of our sin. Who should be on the cross? It is not the righteous Jesus. It is the wicked sinners that we are. To look on the cross is to recognize the consequence of our own sin. But I think we must look and we must not turn away. It is our sin that caused Jesus to die. It is our sin that caused him to give up his whole life. It is our sin that demanded his death. Our sin is real. Our sin is, requires a real sacrifice. And our sin demanded something more than what we could give to atone for it. So there Jesus is on the cross dying a full, total death for us. Look on the cross. Consider how ugly it is, and know it is ugly because of our sin. Real sin requires real death. Therefore, Jesus gave his whole life as a sacrifice for our sin. There's something we all do. It's a natural response, I think, and that is to minimize ugly, the ugliness of sin and death with, with euphemisms and, and other things. So when we talk about death, we seldom use the word death. We'll use other words, don't we? We'll talk about somebody, well, you know, so-and-so, they passed. So-and-so, they've, they've gone on to the, to the other side. Those things sound nicer, don't they, than talking about death? Th then, we, then we do other things. So we, we go to funeral homes and we, we dress up corpses to make them look like they are not dead. And then we all stand around and look at them and go, don't they look Nice. My, my favorite, we say, well, they just look natural. They look dead, dear friends. But we're doing what, we're, what sort of comes natural to us. We want to minimize the ugly. We want to cover it up. We want to uh, make, uh, change the words to make it sound better. But, dear friends, death, the death of Jesus is ugly. The death of Jesus is made more grotesque when you understand that he is dying for our sin and that the reason and requirement of Jesus' death for our sin is central to the, to the fundamental biblical truth of, of everything we believe. Listen to me carefully. The holiness of God demands that no sin can be in his presence. That means that any of us who have sinned, and the Bible says that all of us have sinned, then therefore none of us can stand in the presence of a holy God. The Bible declares that God condemns all sin, which means all of us who have sinned are under the condemnation of God. The Bible declares that man is, we have an inability to be righteous. 
Therefore, we come to understand that man is completely and totally dependent upon God for redemption. You will find that those who deny the holiness of God and man's dependence on the grace of God at some point come to deny the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Right now, there are cults and false religions who will, who will say to you, Jesus is a great guy, a great teacher, a great leader, even a great prophet, but they will not say he is the Son of God who died without sin for our sin. Because to do so recognizes the holiness of God and the depravity of man. At the core of every liberal humanist, even liberal humanist theologians, now there is such a thing, by the way, at the core of all that they teach is a denial that Jesus actually died. They come up with some amazingly fantastical theories that somehow Jesus passed out. Somehow he, he got real sick, looked like he was dead, but somehow revived himself in the coolness of the tomb, but at the core of all of their teaching is denying the death of Jesus because to recognize the death of Jesus is to recognize the holiness of God and the depravity of man. Dear friends, the testimony of the cross of a total and complete offering of the life of Jesus is a testimony both to the dark and ugly moment of the cross, but in that dark and ugly moment, there emerges the most beautiful and glorious moment of grace because in that moment we see Jesus giving his whole life for the redemption of wicked sinners like us that we might know life eternal and be made right before a holy God. Jesus gave his whole life, died a real death, that sinners might know the love of God and be saved from sin and death. That's the beauty found in the ugliness of that moment. Total death. Jesus, like all the rams and lambs and, every, and bulls that were given in for sin offerings, where they drained out their whole blood and gave their whole life, Jesus hung on the cross giving his whole life, dying a real death, a total death for you and I. But there's something else there I want you to see. And look in verse 47 at what Jesus says. Excuse me, verse 46. He says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? One of the last words spoken by the Messiah on the cross was an agonizing plea recognizing that he had been forsaken, abandoned. What I think is happening there is as Jesus is giving his whole life, there's something else going on, and that he is bearing the whole weight of our sin. If you want to divide this in your mind, think about giving his whole life as a physical offering and, and, and bearing the full weight of our sin as a spiritual offering. Jesus, in this moment, is bearing our sin. I think this is the most intense and sad moment of the crucifixion recorded in this verse where he pleads, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here is Jesus. Let's consider who he is. He is eternal God. 
He is a part of the eternal trinity with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Forever, eternally known, has eternally and forever known the fellowship of the trinity and the praise and glory of all heaven and all earth. And in this moment, hanging on a tree, dying a physical death, he is abandoned. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think he means what he says. I think he has indeed been abandoned. I don't think he's speaking emotionally. I don't think he's speaking metaphorically. I believe Jesus is speaking literally here. Because the full weight of yours and mine and every other sinner's sin is placed on him in this moment. 2 Corinthians, Paul writes, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ as through God we're entreating through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him, speaking of Jesus, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In other words, what Paul is saying is that in this moment where Jesus is crying out, why have you forsaken me? God has taken your sin and my sin and placed it on Jesus. It's bearing the fullness of the weight of our sin. And as such, God has given him over to the consequence of that sin. Don't miss this. We should be forsaken by God. We should be given over to the consequences of our sin. We should bear the full weight of our sin. But Jesus, who had never in a second moment ever sinned in his whole life, who had perfectly obeyed the will of the Father for all of eternity, in this moment took on the full weight of every vile sin that every vile sinner had ever done. And I can't say anything other than this moment that what amazing grace that God would forsake him that he might redeem us. You see, Jesus is suffering in this moment our condemnation. Now, I don't pretend, I don't pretend in any way to, to understand the fullness and the depth of the relationship of the Trinity, but I do know this. I know that the cost and suffering borne by Jesus by being forsaken by the Father for our sins was greater than any of us can ever understand. Not only was he forsaken for our sin, but the full condemnation of our sin was placed on him. Isaiah, the prophet, wrote these words. He said, surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him not. We esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastising of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned our own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. You see, sin 
from a holy God is never excused. Sin from an holy God is never overlooked. A holy God never ignores sin. A holy God never forgets sin. Sin is judged and it is condemned. And at this moment on the cross, Jesus is bearing the fullness of our condemnation. How do we have forgiveness? It is not because God has forgotten our sin. It is not because God has ignored our sin. It is not because God has excused our sin. How do we have forgiveness of our sin? Because he has taken our sin and condemned Jesus with our sin. At this moment on the cross, Jesus is bearing the fullness of our condemnation as he bears the total weight for our sin. Jesus died a total death. He bears the total weight of our sin so that he might bring about total redemption for sinners. Now here's the deal, friends. When you think about your sin and how you can be right before God, the good news of the gospel is that because what Jesus does on the cross, our sin debt has been paid. When Jesus died, Matthew records in verse 51 that the veil of the temple was torn. Now, if you're not familiar with the, with, with the, the temple that was there in the days of, of Jesus, there, was, there were a couple of sections that got progressively more restrictive the room just outside the veil was the, one of the most, well, it was the most restricted room except for what was behind the veil. The veil was a thick fabric that separated uh, the, the outer chamber from the Holy of Holies where the presence of the Lord dwelt with his people. And, and, and that was only entered once a year by the high priest. And even then, it's an interesting to go back and read the Levitical commands of all the things that the high priest had to do to prepare and to sanctify himself that he might be holy just to, just to enter in that room for a brief moment and to make atonement for the sins of the people. When Jesus died, the Bible tells us that that veil that was a physical representation of the separation between the holiness of God and sinful man. It was ripped. Not a little tear, by the way. The Bible says it was ripped from top to bottom, totally separated. It had been a reminder that no man in sin could stand before a holy God. But now that it has been ripped... It is a physical reminder that the sin debt that separated you and I from the holiness of God has been settled. No longer would the blood of bulls and lambs and goats be required to be sprinkled on the mercy seat inside the Holy of Holies. No longer would the high priest need to sanctify himself to be able to make sacrifice for the atonement of people. Now, because the debt had been paid, you and I might walk into the presence of the living God, not on account of ourselves, but on account of the redemption of Jesus brought through his blood and his sacrifice. I know most of you, have at some point in your life used debt maybe to buy a house or a car or something like that? And there's a reality that when you go into debt that the debtor, the one who lends you the money, has some control over you. They demand payment. You have to make those payments every, every whatever period you've set up. 
If you don't make those payments, the, the debtor can come and take from you that possession that you've bought with the, uh, with the borrowed money. You are not free to do what you want to. The, the debtor, can, the, the, the one who has given you that money, can demand you have certain amounts of insurance and those sort of things on those things that you have borrowed. That's why the Bible says that, that the debtor is slave to the lender because you're not your own. But when that debt has been paid, and that mortgage is released, and that title is set free, you no longer are indebted. You are no longer enslaved to the lender. And the lender has no more power or authority over the debtor. That's why we love to say Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he what? Washed it white as snow. The debt's been paid, friends, and the work is completed. One of the most powerful testimonies to the work of the cross is found in the first few verses of Romans 8. There is now, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's a word there that I think is important in Romans 8.1. When it says there is therefore now, it's referencing that there used to be, but now there is no longer. The now is in response to the death of Jesus on the cross. Now the debt has been paid. Now the curse has been removed. Now there is no condemnation. Now the requirements of the law have been fulfilled. Now sinners have been set free from the law of sin and death. And that's why Paul writes, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. When John records these, this moment on the cross, he adds one sentence to the last words of Jesus that Matthew doesn't include. John records that the very last word that Jesus spoke was this, it is finished. What was finished? The work of redemption was finished. What had been prophesied by the prophets, what had been declared by the law, it is finished. Not only was the veil ripped, but the full work of redemption was complete, fully, completely, all the way, nothing left to do. It is done. The good word of the gospel is that salvation has been offered to sinners through the work of Jesus on the cross. The work is done. The atonement is complete. And all that is required of those who would be saved is to receive what Jesus has already done. Dying on the cross, a total death. Bearing the full weight of all of our sin to provide for us total redemption. I have a recurring nightmare that I've been told is a familiar nightmare that many people have. So maybe this will ring a bell with you. 
Now, my recurring nightmare has been happening most of my life, but depending on where I am in life, it takes on different forms. Now, in my life, it typically comes now in two different ways I dream. The first is this. In my dream, it is the last day of class in college, finals day. And in my dream, I have not been to class yet all semester. And I don't know where the classroom is. And I've not done any of the work. And I'm not prepared for the final. And in and, and the dream, there's this, I mean, it is a nightmare. It's not a dream. It is a nightmare. Because I spend the entire nightmare either trying to find the classroom, trying to do a semester's worth of work, or cram a whole semester's worth of knowledge so that I might pass the the, uh, the, the final. And of course, I never find the classroom. I never take the final. I wake up not having completed what I should have been completed. Now, there's a second form to that. It's related to being a pastor, and that is it's Sunday in this nightmare. Church has started, and either I can't find my sermon notes, or even worse, I didn't know it was Sunday was coming. I didn't know I was going to have to preach, and I don't have a sermon prepared. And I spend the entire dream trying to put together a sermon or find my sermon notes or something, and, and I'm horrified that at any moment I'm going to be called to preach and I'm not, not prepared, I'm not ready. Now, the underlying horror of those nightmares doesn't really have to do with academics. It doesn't really have to do with preaching. It has to do with being unprepared. Nobody likes to be in that moment where you are called to account for an expectation and you don't have anything to bring. Now, in every area of our life, there are moments of judgment, moments where the time of preparation has expired and the measure of what has been done has been exposed. You have those at work. You've been given a project. Your boss comes and says, present your work. And if you don't present your work, there are consequences to that. One, you'll have to answer the question, what have you been doing since you were given that requirement? If you're, if you're a student, Finals come every semester. Tests come regularly. And at the moment of the test, at the moment of the final, is not the time to decide you're going to be a studious student. Somebody say amen. That's where you're exposed to what you have been doing. And if you're going to be a preacher, I got word for you. Sunday comes around every week until Jesus comes back. So you better be preparing to preach all week. Friends, there is coming a moment in each of our lives. Listen to me. There is coming a moment in each of our lives when judgment is coming. And on that day, we will be judged not according to the standards we set. On that day, we will be judged according to the righteous, perfect standards of God. And on that day, the opportunity for preparation will be no more. Here is the good news, the glorious news. Jesus has already done the work. Jesus has completed the work. It is finished. It is done. The full demands, the, the, the debt has been settled. All of that has been done by Jesus on the cross, giving his whole life, bearing the full weight of our sin. And on that day of judgment, when God calls us to account for our lives, it will not matter what you have done or accomplished because whatever you have done and whatever you have accomplished will mean and be worth nothing. 
on that, ju- on that day of judgment, all that will matter is if you have been redeemed by Jesus. Has his total death taken the place for sin's demand for your death? Has he borne the fullness of your sin, taken on all of your sin that you might take on all of his righteousness? If you have, then his total death and bearing the fullness of the weight of all of your sins will provide for you in that day full and total and complete redemption. I love this. Nobody squeaks into heaven. Nobody just barely makes it into glory. Either you enter glory in the full glory and righteousness of Jesus or you don't enter at all. Why Jesus, that's why Paul writes, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes resulting in righteousness and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. Jesus died for you. He bore your sin debt for you that he might provide for you total, complete, finished, redemption.